Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Today's podcast is the second of an occasional series of interviews this spring addressing the life and work of Raphael Lemkin. Lemkin, as many of you already know, coined the term genocide in response to the catastrophic destruction of cultures and peoples in the first half of the 20th century, and in recognition that this was only the most recent set of examples of those kind of campaigns which have happened throughout human history. While his contribution have never been forgotten, there's been something of a renaissance of interest in Lemkin over the past decade. I'm thrilled to say that today I'm talking with Donnelly Fries, the editor of Lemkin's previously unpublished autobiography, Totally Unofficial, the Autobiography of Raphael Lemkin, published by Yale University Press. The book is, in some sense, incomplete, as Lemkin didn't finish it before his untimely death but it offers readers a unique opportunity to understand his life and ideas. In addition, Donna is the editor of a recent special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research that re-examines Lemkin's work and ideas. I learned a lot from both of them, and I'm looking forward to talking with Donna about them. So, without any further introduction, Donna, thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So, so let's just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the field of genocide studies. Well, I, I guess I came from um, out of field. Uh, I did a, a double major, undergraduate major in literature and philosophy, and I was very much interested in aftermath of trauma and representation of trauma. So um, even though I did, I sort of merged into Holocaust studies. Um, uh, at some stage after my uh, undergraduate degree, but uh, I also did a, um, a sub-major in film studies. So my PhD ended up being on genocide film and philosophy. So uh, oh, wow. it, uh, I'm, very, I'm a very interdisciplinary scholar. So, and genocide studies is a very interdisciplinary field, if you mm-hmm. can call it a field yet. Um, it invites... Um, uh, contributions from anthropology, sociology, law, philosophy, all all areas. So it's it very much suits me as an academic to be in, in genocide studies. And I'm also very interested in testimony because I think it's very important to listen to voices of survivors of genocide. So for, for those listeners who aren't really familiar with Lemkin, um, we'll get into his life in detail in a, in a moment, but can you just say a few words about how, who he is and or was and why he was important? Um, well, I think why he is important um, is, well, <laughs> Lemkin was born um, to a Polish Jewish family in 1900, um, had a very sort of unremarkable uh, childhood, a very rural childhood. Um, grew up on a farm with his family and his cousins and his aunts and uncles and two brothers. Um, but a- according to Lemkin's account, um, he became very interested in the destruction of people at a very young age. Um, it, it 
made him want to sort of go into learn languages. He's very interested in culture. Um, but there were a lot of circumstances in Lincoln's life that made him change to law. Um, he tried to outlaw what was known as acts of barbarity and acts of vandalism in 1933, which are embryonic forms of genocide as we know it today. Um, he was unsuccessful. In 1933, Hitler came to power, and there are a whole lot of reasons why this um, this uh, act never came into fruition. And then, um, basically, the Nazis invaded his home in Poland in 1939. Uh, he escaped. He came to America. And while his um, family, uh, his mother and father in particular, were gassed at Treblinka, he coined the word genocide. And, um, and he fought, he sort of became an activist after this rather than a scholar, um, I think driven on by grief um, and made sure that genocide became a crime under international law. And he, he died alone and in poverty at the age of 59. So it's a, as Robert J. Lifton has said, it's a strangely hopeful tale, but it's also a, a tragic tale as well. So I mentioned in the introduction, he's never been completely ignored, but, but there's been a resurgence of interest in him and his life and his ideas in the past decade or so. Why has that been? Well, I, I'm not sure that I agree that he's been okay. uh, ignored. I think, I think he was ignored. I mean, genocide scholars, and, and bless them, they did amazing work when they first began in the late 80s and early 90s, um, predominantly sociologists, um, but he was ignored. Lemkin was primarily ignored. I mean, that people had mentioned him, um, that the word genocide was coined from him, but his ideas were ignored. And I think what has happened, certainly since um, around uh, 2005 to 2007, let's say, um, Lemkin's ideas have begun to um, made an impact on the scholarship. So while I think... Perhaps Lemkin himself wasn't ignored. I, I believe that his ideas and his thought and his um, processes as an intellectual and an academic have been ignored completely. So I think mm. this is what the resurgence is. People are interested in what he had to say as an academic, as a lawyer, as a historian, um, mm. as, a, as a cultural theorist. Um, because, you know, he's, he's known as being a lawyer, but he, he, he did. He was probably the first historian of genocide studies. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is what, what's happened. And I think this is people that looked at him and said, this man has a trove of archives with loads of academic and scholarly writings that people have ignored. And so I think this is what's happened. So, so why did you decide to take part in this? Well, um, it was partly coincidental and partly out of rage. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I received a scholarship from the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne in Australia um, to go to Lemkin's archives because I knew that there were a lot of um, his scholarly ideas there. And um, I wasn't the first to discover this, but I did discover that there was this manuscript sitting there that had been unpublished. And um, so many people had spoken on Lemkin's behalf, um, and this was Lemkin's voice about his life. And uh, I looked at the manuscript, which was many, many pages 
of particular chapters, some handwritten. And I can see why scholars have looked at this and thought, I can't do this, it's just too much. And, and I came home and I brought the manuscript home with me and I was speaking to colleagues about it and I said, it's, um, I'm outraged that this has not been published mm. before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, well, I can't sit back and say, well, I'm outraged and not do anything about it. So I spent the next four and a half to five years of my life <laughs> transcribing and editing the, the volume. So um, it, was, it was hard work. I, um, my eyesight deteriorated, but um, mm. it was, it was um, it, my struggle was minimal compared to Lemkin. So it was um, very rewarding in the end. And I'm, glad, I'm very glad that Lemkin's voice is out there. Yeah. Mm. So, so why does he write this autobiography? Mm. That's a really interesting question, Kelly, because um, and one that I haven't actually been asked before. I think, I think that um, Lemkin saw the life of the Genocide Convention, not his role in it so much, but the actual convention, which he sort of animates as a as a as a, almost in human terms. I mean, he calls it his baby. He says. Um, so the genocide convention and I went off to, to Paris together and, huh. you know, he's, um, and I think he sees this convention, um, as, uh, something that was larger than him. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I say in the introduction to the autobiography that, it, and I, maybe it shouldn't be called an autobiography because in some ways it is a biography of the genocide convention. Mm-hmm. It starts off as an autobiography of Lemkin um, uh, and in a very sentimental way, I must say, um, but it becomes something larger than Lemkin. It becomes a journey of what happens to this convention um, before it's a convention, so um, in vitrio, and um, and and then and then it's birth. I mean, he talks about it in these terms. You know, people are trying. You know, are trying to abort the genocide convention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he saw that the convention as something as a sign of hope for humankind. Yeah. So I think that's why he wrote it. But you know, I'm not Lemkin's biographer. I'm merely <laughs> the editor of his autobiography. So. <laughs> so in in the autobiography yeah. or or the biography of, of the convention, however you want to portray it, yeah. what does he say about his early life? Or maybe I, let me ask ask it this way. Yeah. Is there something in his early experience that that creates this driving passion about human rights and about mass violence in his early years, or is that a creation of, of the middle period of his life? Um, well, there's there's two answers to that. There's the interpretation of me as a reader, and it's Lemkin's mm-hmm. um, ideas on this. Uh, I think you know his is certainly his mother influenced him. Um, she told him a lot of stories and fables and songs. I think growing up in a um, I, in some in a somewhat multicultural, for want of a better word, environment. Um, where he saw, he certainly portrays his early childhood as harmonious, um, living among Polish farmhands um, and and having a Jewish identity. It sounds from his accent that his first language was Yiddish, but I can't be 100% sure. 
So, you know, this Yiddishite, Yiddishkeit um, upbringing as well. But I think also um, he was a very empathic child. He was a mm. deep intellectual and empathic child. But I have to say the thing that really struck me was that in 1915 the Germans invaded his hometown um, mm -hmm. in uh, eastern Poland. But the event of 1915 that... Um, actually impacted on Lemkin more than that was the Armenian genocide. So hmm. it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing that this occurrence that's happening in another part of the world um, affects him a lot more than uh, what is happening to his hometown and, and also to his home. I believe that his farm was burnt down during 1915 as well. Hmm. So um, I, he was struck, he was certainly struck that, of punity of the Armenian genocide as well, um, and and this happened later in the trial um, of the Ottoman Turks, but um, he was shocked and stunned that somebody could be convicted for the homicide or the killing of one man or one person, but there was impunity for the destruction of a group of people. So I think this is the the Armenian genocide. I think more than. It, it, certainly up until 1945, more than anything else, really, really altered his um, and hmm. stayed with him, altered his imagination um, and his legal mind around this issue. And um, uh, he, it, was, it was the genocide that he brought up every time he yeah. needed to explain what genocide was. Hmm. So for Lemkin, I think it was probably a few variables, um, uh, I, I, but I certainly would say the Armenian genocide is the key, hmm. key event. So, so you mentioned his background uh, a little bit earlier, and he has this kind of idyllic, or, or presented anyway in his, yes. in his biography, his idyllic. In, his, in, in the 1930s, he's, he's become quite successful. Um, what's he doing in that period, and how does he get there? Okay, well, this is a very mysterious part of Lenkin's life because yeah. he actually doesn't write a lot about it. It's one that I'm the, the most curious about. Um, I think Lemkin's quite embarrassed he, he, about this period of his life because he's quite wealthy. Um, I'm reading between the lines. I think he had a country home. Um, he was a very successful deputy prosecutor of, of Warsaw. He was producing a book a year. Um, and I think he feels guilty about this this part of his hmm. life, which is pro possibly why he doesn't write about it a lot. Um, because when he's escaping um, uh, as an internally um, displaced refugee in his own hometown in Poland in 1939, he's, um, he, it's then he decides that he wants to be empowered to stop this, this um, heinous scourge that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. about to occur to Poland. Um, but the night, he, Lemkin is very mysterious about a lot of things in his life. For instance, I know that his um, youngest brother dies when Lemkin's about 21 from the Spanish hmm. flu. It's not even mentioned. Hmm. Um, so, but the 1930s, you know, I'm curious, what was life like for a Jewish public prosecutor in yeah. Warsaw in the 1930s? Hmm. He doesn't say. Hmm. So, yeah. And as I read the memoir, I have to say, even if he had, so so for for those of you who don't know the story, right? He's the Germans invade in 1939, and he's forced to flee, and he has this astonishing journey to the United States. That even if 
he had not gone on to introduce the convention and managed to get the convention passed, I think I still would have read this book just to read the story about this trip. Yeah. So yeah. can you talk about the trip? How, how did he get to the United States? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book because it reads like, I don't know what it was like for you, Kelly, but for me, even though I've read it a lot of times, it reads like an adventure story to me. Yeah. I kind of, even though I know what's going to happen, I'm still sort of sitting on the edge of my seat and thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's a beautiful writer and I think his writing comes out really well in these passages, but the way Lemkin describes it is that he, um, the Germans invaded Warsaw. Um, there's orders for all able-bodied men to escape Warsaw. So he takes a shaving kit and his glasses and he goes to the, the station, which is crowded with a sea of people and people are wailing and crying. Then the train is bombed. And then he, he's basically living out in the forest with other internally displaced refugees. And, um, and mostly following the, um, the Polish army who are um, defeated, as Lemkin describes, defeated even before battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually um, he, he realises that he must go and see his parents, which is in another part of Poland, but um, he has to actually pass through uh, Russian patrols and he knows, he's smart enough, he knows his area well enough to know that he can't go there with his um, city eyeglasses yeah. and um, and his uh, smooth hands, and he's got to talk like a, um, a Russian peasant, basically, and act like one. So um, he tries to cross this this border, and the Russians are very suspicious of him. So he um, they they keep him overnight, um, and he uh, he does eventually escape, but he and he acts like a, one of these Russian parent, peasants. Hmm. Um, he does escape, and then there's this um, really moving passage where he spends um, a week in a, a shtetl, which is a, um, a, a Eastern European Jewish village, a religious village, Jewish mm-hmm. village, with um, a Jewish baker, and he tries to convince this baker that what is about to occur is not war. It's something different to war. Hmm. Um, and the Jewish baker is uh, not convinced. He said, "You know, I, for us Jews, we have to suffer, and 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 this is this is our, our way of life." Um, the Germans have come here through come here before. The Germans need us. You know, I need to bake their bread for them. And Lenkin says, "No, this is not. This is different. This is something else. This is destruction." Have you not heard of Mein Kampf? And the baker says, "Well, even if I had, I still wouldn't believe that." People want to eradicate or destroy the Jews. Hmm. Lemkin goes to sleep that night and he hears this wailing of a sound and he realises it's the baker having this dialogue with God. And um, it's a very, very moving passage because later Lemkin um, is an advisor to the American prosecution at Nuremberg and mm-hmm. um, there's a massacre in this village where Lemkin stayed with this baker and he recalls um, hmm. the uh, testament at, at Nuremberg and, and the baker's wailing to God. Anyway, eventually Lemkin does escape from there and family and um, he tries to convince his parents to come along with him. But it sounds to me like they were too old and too frail to do that, probably yeah. too 
and they encourage him to go to America to to pursue his idea of um, of the this genocide convention, but it's, it's not a quarter genocide convention at this stage because Lincoln hadn't coined a term for it yet. Um, and eventually he uh, he gets help because he was a very influential um, lawyer in Poland in the 1930s, so he has a lot of international um, friends who are high up in Polish in um, European legal circles. So um, he gets passage to Sweden eventually where he he um, he lectures at the University of Stockholm for a year and one of his other colleagues who he co-wrote a book with in the 1930s was a man called Malcolm McDermott from Duke University in North Carolina and he eventually um, gets Lemkin a job at Duke University so Lemkin arrives um, in, in 1941. But it's an extraordinary passage. He goes through yeah. um, Russia and Japan and he makes these extraordinary cultural observations um, uh, of these countries at the time. And then he <laughs> arrives in sunny North Carolina, and it's a, a very strange place for this Polish Jew to, to end up. But it's, yes, they're wonderful passages, yes. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, and then as you say, or at least as I read it, it, it changes direction. If it was perhaps his autobiography more or less before that, it, it quite quickly becomes a biography of the convention from that point forward. Mm-hmm. And, and can you say something about how he envisioned this? How does he, at least as he writes about it, how does he hope, what does he hope will happen and who does he see as his opponents in getting the convention pa- uh, passed and implemented? Well, it's it's interesting when when one is writing one's autobiography, one always knows the ending. Yes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he knew what was going to happen while he was writing this, but um, or what had already happened. Um, but um, I, it's it's I find it very interesting that a lot of portraits of Lemkin portray him as um, as naive and. Um, and I actually find that Lemkin is anything but that. He certainly the way he portrays his story. He knew that um, what he called were so-called snakes, the snakes, the politicians that were out to sort of um, destroy the genocide convention. He was one hit, one step ahead of him, and what I mean by one step, one legal step, he could mm. um, he could outwit them legally every time. It seems to me that that's what happened. Um, he was very astute, um, and uh, I, he could portray himself as naive and um, uh, to a lot of these people, but there was also a side of him that was very, um, very, very passionate about this as well. So I think a combination of his passion and his intellect, um, you know, drove him. But of course, his his um, aim was to have um, an international legal convention that would include um, the outlawing of the destruction of particular groups and through particular methods. And those methods were physical, biological, and cultural. And um, some of your listeners may or may not know um, the cultural aspects of the Genocide Convention um, never came through, and that was Lemkin's most uh, disappointing time, I think, during this. However, I would argue that um, it's 
impossible to destroy a group physically without destroying it culturally anyway. So mm -hmm. to me, cultural genocide is inherent within the whole concept of genocide anyway. Um, and it's very interesting because even though there was a legal definition of genocide after 1951 or 1948 to 1951, Lemkin still um, understood genocide as a, as a destruction of cultural, um, the cultural uh, qualities or personalities of a particular group. Mm -hmm. um, now, I mean, Lemkin was in the 1940s, these concepts of groups is, is very difficult for a lot of historians and sociologists and anthropologists today as well. I mean, is it so easy to divide human beings into groups, particular groups now? I mean, that is problematic. The Genocide Convention then was a racial groups, ethnical groups, um, uh, oh, I've forgotten, racial, ethnic, religious um, groups. And, you know, those those groups are, uh, are fluid. They're very fluid now. But um, I'm going a little bit off topic, I'm sorry, but um, look, I think really Lemkin's aim was to get this um, as, as an international legal convention and that's what he got. He presents himself, at least I, as I read it, yeah. as, as I guess dri driven is a word, that's perhaps an underestimate of the way he present that, that I read his character in this. Um, wedded to a, a particular vision, um, devoted to a cause. How did, his, how did his contemporaries view him? Well, Lemkin was a very, very intuitive person. And I think mm -hmm. the concept of intuition in males in the 1940s and 1950s was frowned upon. <laughs> Maybe it still is. I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, and he, he used what he called a lot of horse sense in this as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think one of the things that surprised me about reading this, and I know that this is Lemkin portraying himself, yeah. um, but it's also me doing a lot of archival reading about people who have met, met Lemkin. Mm -hmm. um, he, was, he was admired. A lot of people admired him, admired his drive. They did think he was obsessed with this idea. Um, but uh, there certainly a lot of people from um, um, places that you would not expect a Polish Jew at that time to befriend, people from Pakistan, India, mm -hmm. Cuba, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, um, and, uh, you know, the Philippines, um, I have to say the Australians, I also <laughs> great mm -hmm. loved him. I loved him a lot. And, um, uh, but, you know, it, it, would, it would depend, I think, upon certainly upon people's political disposition towards the Genocide Convention. Yeah. Um, I, look, I think he was seen as a great humanitarian mm -hmm. by many. Did he think of himself as an insider or an outsider? Oh, definitely an insider. Without, mm -hmm. An outsider, I'm sorry. An outsider, yeah, mm -hmm. without a doubt. No, he never, I don't think he ever felt comfortable. Um, there is one passage where uh, I have to say he's in the Australian Delegates Lounge and, you know, he says, you know, he couldn't be more comfortable. He felt 
he felt um, more comfortable than he did with even his family. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement to make. Yeah. He was always on the periphery. He didn't belong to any organization. He always had adjunct positions at universities. Um, his brother, his only surviving relative, his brother lived in Canada. Um, yes, he was very, very much an outsider. He didn't, he didn't belong, but he, belo he was a very, very spiritual person. He belonged within himself. Um, he wrote a lot of poetry, a lot of very bad poetry, I have to say. But <laughs> so, um, but um, he, uh, but he, he, he did read a lot of poetry as well, and he felt very comfortable being not lonely but alone. It gave mm. him strength. It gave him a lot of strength. Yeah. I I just interviewed Steve Jacobs, right. um, who, for those of you who don't know, um, edited Lumpkin's. Uh, at that time, unpublished history of genocide. He's just yes. public, edited it and published it. Um, and I asked him a, a question I'd like to ask you, and it's not directly in the book you've edited, but but there are hints at it. What did what did Lemkin think of the world around him? Was he optimistic about his world, or pessimistic, or? Oh, I'd love to know what Steve said about that. I'll have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I will. Um, was he? I think he was a pessimist. And look, look, he's strange. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll take that back, Kelly. I, I think he saw himself as a pessimist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I don't think anybody could have done what he did what he managed to do with that convention and get that through the United Nations as a pessimist. Um, I, you had to have hope. He had to get up every morning and, you know, he had a uphill battle every morning to get this, to convince delegates every day that this was an important piece of legislation that had to be passed. Um, a, a, a total pessimist couldn't do that. He, Maybe a realist. I'd like to call him a realist. Mm -hmm. He had hope. He was despondent, but he was realistic as well. I will Did just he work what Steve said about that. <laughs> <laughs> Did he work himself to death? Um, possibly. He possibly did. Mm. Um, although I was just speaking to a colleague the other day because Lemkin really didn't have a job in the last few years of his life, and I don't know why. He lived around the corner from Cambridge University. You know, there's a Cambridge Law School. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if he didn't want to work or he was so disheveled and um, that he, he probably didn't feel he could go for an interview. Although the woman that knew him in the last two years of his life, Nancy Stason Ehrlich, who is still living in Brooklyn today, she met him as a 22-year-old um, at Riverside Park, and she she said he was delightful company. She said he was. She knew that he wasn't well. Um, she didn't know what was wrong with him, but she said he was humorous, um, and he was a lot of fun to be around. I mean, this is not an image that we have of Lampkin. A lot of fun to be around, but this is what she said about him. <laughs> Did he work himself to death? Yes, he possibly did, but there was a history of high blood pressure in his family. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, look, and also, 
I think, you know, there were lots of times when um, he was working so hard on the genocide convention that uh, he couldn't work, so he couldn't eat nutritious food. I, you know, mm. I would say mm-hmm. possibly yes. So we're running a little bit short on time. I know you have a, yeah. a schedule you have to keep, but can I ask you just just for a minute yeah. um, to maybe say something about the special issue of the journal you edited and 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 what why why now is the right time for that kind of uh, devoted special issue on Lemkin to come out and what you were hoping to do with that? Well, it, it was born out of an international conference held at the Center for Jewish History in New York in two thousand and nine. Uh, where we have scholars from around the world talking about Lemkin as a scholar of uh, of law, of um, of history, and of cultural studies as well. So it, I think uh, I, I'm possibly right in saying that this is, you know, a, a conference that kickstarted Lemkin mm-hmm. not just as the person who coined the word genocide, but going back to what I originally said at the beginning of the interview, as someone who actually had intellectual ideas about history and culture and anthropology and psychology. Um, And so the special issue was really born from this this conference. And and even though uh, only one contributor, um, Hilary Earle, um, contributed to the conference and the the journal – uh, what um, Dirk Moses and I found was that by the time we came around to publishing this, there were younger scholars coming up who mm-hmm. were looking at Lemkin's ideas. So we just thought mm-hmm. this was the right time um, to give um, these scholars um, a, a platform um, because they were doing something that us mid-range and older, <laughs> older uh, scholars aren't, weren't doing, and that is looking at Lemkin as a historian and as someone who was interested in uh, in cultural history and had all these intellectual um, contributions to make to genocide studies that had been ignored. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why I found the special issue really exciting um, to have a platform for these young scholars who are brilliant and, are, are, you know, are going to be the next generation of, yeah. um, you know, great, great genocide study scholars. Oh, it was wonderfully interesting to read, and I learned a lot from it. And Yes, me too, actually. <laughs> uh, that's always the joy of being an editor, I imagine, is that yeah. you get to learn. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've taken a lot of your time. Just if I could wrap up. Yeah. Um, what are you doing now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing off a fellowship in the last six months at the Centre for Jewish History, and um, I'm actually listening to a bank of audio tapes of Austrian um, child Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, that are held at the Leo Beck Institute at the Centre for Jewish History. I'm also writing a history of the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne, Australia, which is a, a very unique I'll give it a plug here. I'm happy to give it a plug. It's a very unique uh, Holocaust museum um, that is run predominantly by um, survivor, Polish survivor uh, community in Melbourne. So um, hopefully that's going to be published in 2014. And I've got lots of other little things on the go as well. Things that we think are little often turns into big things, I've found. Exactly. It's all great. Well, Donna... Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it so much, and I hope somewhere down the line that we'll get a chance to talk to you again on the show. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kelly. 
You've been listening to an interview with Donna Lee Fries, editor of The New Work, Totally Unofficial, the autobiography of Raphael Lemkin, published by Yale University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for an interview with Susan Thompson, author of Whispering Truth to Power, Everyday Resistance to Reconciliation in Post-Genocide Rwanda. Until then, have a great month.